Thank you. Good morning, Cedarville. It is good to be here. If you had your choice this morning of uh, the sermon topic you'd like to hear, would you rather hear one about a successful, charismatic, powerful leader king, or would you rather hear one of a fugitive who's on the run, confused, makes mistakes, and is desperate? It's not like you really get a choice. I mean, but the good news is that you're going to hear both of those sermons because both those sermons belong to the same person, David, right? So the, the story of the successful king who's in charge is in the first 11 chapters of 2 Samuel. The story of the fugitive who's on the run with unfettered raw emotions and humanity on display is the David we find in the last 11 chapters of 1 Samuel chapters 21 to 31. And it's in this section that we're gonna find a very unglamorous but deeply human and profoundly spiritual David who's gonna show us what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Now, that particular phrase is a very unique one. It is a sweet one. God only says it once and he only says it about one person. But what exactly does it mean? He says that in 1 Samuel 13, but what he's gonna do in these chapters today in 21 to 31 is explain it and illustrate it over and over and over again. So if you ever wanna know what it really means, that's what we're gonna look at today. But before we do that, I gotta give you a little bit of introduction because this is an incredibly long section. There are 11 chapters, 21 different scenes, and a thousand different details going on here. There's no, there's no giants getting killed, no beautiful Davidic covenants or promises being made, not even the infamous you know, Bathsheba and Uriah, none of that stuff. It's just Saul chasing David wherever he can. I mean, if I showed you a map, it really wouldn't help, right? It's just, just geographical spaghetti. I mean, it's hard to understand, honestly, and, and frankly, it would be just as well labeled Saul plays whack-a-mole with David. That's what's going on here. So it is enough for a sincere Bible reader to ask, couldn't this all have just been summarized in one chapter, right? But the answer, of course, is no, not at all. It's inspired. Every word of this inspired. The right question to ask is, how in the world does God want us to look at this material where he has slowed down so much, this short section filled with so much information. If you take a look at it charted out here, you realize that that second Samuel part where David is the king on the right-hand side of our graph here covers 40 years in 24 chapters. The part we're gonna look at today, the darker blue, where David is the fugitive, lasts for two to three years, probably at most, and we have 11 or 13 chapters, depending on where this whole thing starts. So if you look at this, you realize that, that like when you tell a story and you get to the really good part and you slow down so that no one misses anything, that's exactly what's going on here. There are 10 to 15 times as much concentration in the fugitive part as there's in the king part. Or to put it another way, if the writer had decided to give as much detail to David as king, 2 Samuel would have been 250 chapters long. So what that tells us is we have to take a look. And so we ask ourselves, how do we understand this place that has given so much information? And I'll tell you one way we shouldn't look at it, and that's like an epistle. 
in an epistle, we, we, we scrutinize those verses verse by verse and we put them under a microscope and we do exegetical surgery and that's fine for an epistle. But you can't do this for long sections of narrative literature. You can't, you can't approach it that way. In fact, the metaphor that probably fits better is not the microscope, but rather the mosaic. Right? If you take, and if you, if you actually try to put a mosaic under a microscope, you just, you just get a pixelated mess, right? But the way you deal with a mosaic is you set back and you back off from this. And when you then see the whole, all of a sudden things start to make sense. But those individual tiles by themselves don't make a whole lot of sense. It's everything together. So what we wanna do today is to take a look at all the stories in these 11 chapters and then draw some major macro themes about them and see what it is that God is trying to teach us. I'll give you one really quick bad example of how not to do this. And I'll just, I'll just take one of the early stories of David in um, uh, chapter 21 where he is afraid of Saul, he runs away from Saul, and he is so desperate that he runs to Achish, the king of Gath. And when he gets there, they recognize him and say, wow, aren't you the, you know, you're the Goliath killer, right? When David realizes things are going badly for him, he gets nervous and afraid, he feigns insanity, and the king says, don't I have enough fools around here? Get rid of this guy, and he leaves. Now, if you take that little story, put it under a microscope and start asking questions like, what in the world was David thinking? Or was that immoral for him to lie? Or was that wrong for him to go you know, to the enemy camp? And how does that apply to me today? That's a frustrating way to try to read because the text doesn't offer those answers. The only way to understand that story, again, is to back off, put all the stories together and see what the macro lessons are that God's trying to teach us. So I wanna do that today. I want to get to four different macro lessons, two about God and then two about David. But before we do that, I just need to very quickly summarize these 11 different scenes or 11 different chapters, right? So I'll just start with this. In chapter 21, David goes to a priest named Ahimelech who helps him out, gives him bread and a sword and sends him on his way. Then in chapter 21, David escapes from Saul to Achish and then again escapes from Achish where he goes back to chapter 22, the cave at Adullam and then takes his family all the way across to the east, his mom and dad to Moab so they'll be safe from Saul. In chapter 22, we find out that Saul goes back to those priests where Ahimelech was and kills 85 of them. In chapter 23, David rescues some Israelites from a town called Keilah. They then turn on him and are ready to hand him over to Saul. And so he escapes from Saul once again. Then in chapter 23, he escapes from Saul again in a place called Ziph. In chapter 24, David spares Saul at En Gedi. This is the, if you don't know any of the stories from this section, this is probably the one you've heard. This is where David is in the cave. Saul goes in to relieve himself and David cuts off not his heart, but just the edge of his robe. After this, in chapter 25, David spares a guy named Nabal. His name means fool. And he insults David so badly that David is about to kill him, except that his wife, Nabal's wife, Abigail, a wise woman, intervenes and persuades David not to do that. Chapter 26, then, we have another example of where David could kill Saul, but chooses not to. Frankly, my favorite story. 
in chapter 27 then, he goes back to Achish where he serves him, the king of Gath, the Philistine, for a year and four months. After this then, they begin to head north to fight Saul and, and David is put in this strange situation where he is working with Philistines and about to conflict with Saul. And then what happens is um, chapter uh, 29, he is spared from that because the Philistine kings don't trust him. So providentially he is taken away. David then destroys Amalekites in the south. Oh, I missed the Endor thing, didn't I? I missed uh, Saul at, at the witch at Endor. It all gets confusing, I'm telling you. It's just geographical spaghetti. It just as you try to look at all the individual chapters, chapter 31, Saul and his sons die in the north, and then David avenges and grieves Saul's death. That's a little bit beyond where we're gonna go, but it, it all ties together so well. So now that you're no, not much more enlightened than you were before, but at least you realize the scope of all that we're gonna deal with, let me try to draw together the bigger lessons. So I'm gonna start then with this. What is it that we learn about God? And I'll start with number one. We learn two things, at least about God. And the first one is this, that God develops leaders through adversity and suffering. God tests David with sometimes life-threatening and sometimes temptingly easy choices, which both show and develop his commitment to God. David found the experience challenging and exhausting. And at times he despaired of life, but he never would have been prepared to be king without passing these tests first. So let me show you some of the places where he is in despair here. This time is marked by deep spiritual reflection and reliance on God, but it's only made possible by these hard times. Here's the despair. First of all, David, uh, Saul tries to kill him over 15 times. I mean, that's enough to make anybody frazzled. In chapter 21, the text says this, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Imagine going to your enemy. Then in chapter 27, he's so, he's so desperate, he goes back and he says these words, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hands of Saul. So the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. No, David, you won't, but that's how desperate he was. And in chapter 30, after the Amalekites burn his town and kidnap all the women, all the rest of the men are ready to kill him until he strengthens himself in the Lord. But here's the point, that in all these desperate situations, he goes to God. And, and here's what I'm talking about. Let me show it to you. Let me show you a chart of the Psalms that are um, uh, created during this period. Now, these are not all the Psalms that David spoke, but of all the Psalms in the, uh, that we have in the book that tell us where they are connected to, these are Psalms which show up. So Psalm 59, a prayer of David written when Saul sent men to surround his house and murder him. He says, deliver me from my enemies, my God. Spring into action and help me. Psalm 34, written by David when he pretended to be insane, causing the king to send him away. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. But let me just skip and show you perhaps what I think is a better way to show this. Show this in the context of David's life. And what you find here, again, these are not all the Psalms which David wrote, but all of the Psalms which, which connect it to a point in time. Notice that in those 40 years where he is king, there are three Psalms. Psalm 51, Psalm of repentance over Uriah and Bathsheba. Psalm three, a Psalm of lament when uh, Absalom is chasing him. Look at the others 
during this three-year period. You tell me, where do you think David was most spiritually fruitful? During the times of ease or during the times of suffering? What does it tell us? I think what it tells us is this, that if you wanna develop spiritual depth, you gotta embrace the hard times. Now, that is not just a easy pastoral cliche that I give to you. I know it's easy to say, it's hard to live, but that's where I'm living right now too. I mean, I'm just three months away from heart surgery and I can't do everything I wanna do. I mean, it takes me two naps a day just to get by. And I'm really happy to be vertical in front of you here, but I, I just feel so hamstrung. I, just for fun, I used to run up the steps two at a time in my building. Now I'm lucky if I make it to the top. I can't run on a cross-country course. The doctors say to me, it's okay, nine months, you'll be fine. I think, yeah, nine months? My heart rages against that. Every inclination of my soul wants to say, God, I'm, I'm done with this. Can we just be over this? Please take this trial away as soon as we can. But as I read the stories of David, I begin to realize that a wiser prayer is to say, God, don't take this thing away a minute before I have learned everything you want me to learn. God, use these hard times to draw me deeper into a relationship with you than I ever could have had without them. I said before, if you wanna develop spiritual depth, embrace the hard times. Maybe it'd be better just to say, if you wanna develop spiritual depth, embrace God during the hard times. That's why he gives them. The second thing we learn about God from this story is that God helps in a thousand ways that don't always follow a formula and sometimes happen even without our recognition. So again, let, let me show you a chart here of the various ways that, that God helps David. And you wouldn't catch these if you didn't look at all of them as a whole. And what's amazing about them is they come from every different direction. So for example here, in chapter uh, 21, um, Ahimelech gives David bread to survive and a huge sword belonged to Goliath before. Then in chapter 22, the prophet Gad comes out of nowhere and gives him direct revelation. D David didn't ask for it, but he needed it. And so Gad came and said, don't go here, Saul's there, go over this way. In chapter 22, Abiathar, the only, the only priest that David, excuse me, that Saul didn't kill survives and brings the ephod, that means by which he could have direct revelation from God and know exactly, have a hotline to heaven, know what was going on. In chapter 23, a Philistine attack ends Saul's pursuit. Imagine this, right? God stirs up the Philistines to attack just at the moment where Saul is about to get David and he stops it and, and, and Saul has to go back and deal with the Philistines and David makes it away. In chapter 25, God brings the godly Abigail to stop him from murdering, taking matters into his own hands. In chapter 26, God puts uh, Saul's entire camp to sleep to preserve David. 
In chapter 29, the Philistine leaders pushed David away and God answers through an ephod. And then in 31, moves David 100 miles away. Now, my point is that all of these things can't be predicted and they're all different. And in fact, David probably didn't even recognize many of them. Well, there's no indication that David even knew that the reason why he survived going deep into Saul's camp in chapter 26 is because God put 3,000 people to sleep. All these ways are different, very few predictable, and they don't follow the same formula. So David is riding on this supportive wind of the spirit, like a hovercraft over all the landmines that Saul has laid down. Have you ever felt the enemy whisper doubts to you that God doesn't exist? Or that he doesn't care about you? Because you don't see him at work? Could I just tell you that God has probably worked a thousand different ways on your behalf, enveloping you, supporting you, protecting you, ways that you didn't even know of, and he's giving you everything that you need. This is the God that we see in these chapters. So let's go then to number, the second bit of the macro lessons. What is it that we learn about David? We learn that two things, that David is a man after God's own heart. Two parts to that, again, and it's, again, it's such a sweet, important phrase, but it's not very well defined by our culture or even in the scriptures up to this point. And so you might think, well, it just means that David's a sweet guy with a good heart. You know, he tears up when singing worship songs or something like that. And these 11 chapters define it perfectly. First, David is a man. He is a very limited man who does not know the future and makes very imperfect decisions. Now, I know this goes completely against the narrative and some of you are probably gonna be mad at me here, but it is true. He's a limited man who makes imperfect decisions. Let me just offer you five bits of evidence here, okay? Number one, he is not omniscient and he doesn't make the smartest decisions. They're often made in desperation. I'm not saying that they are immoral, but they are mistakes, the results of human frailty, and he probably wishes he had a whole lot of do-overs. He is a very real, very human character, and I personally find supreme comfort in this. As I bounce around from one challenging situation to another day after day, and I wonder, did I do that right? Did I say the right thing? Did I say too much? Did I say too little? Did I have the right tone? I, I don't know, and I wish I did. David, I find, is like this. And in fact, one of the best examples is, let's go back to that Achish situation, right? Can you imagine what it would have been like if Samuel, his mentor, had interviewed him afterwards? Now, I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but I have a wild guess it would have gone something like this. Samuel looks at him and says, David, you went to Achish, king of Gath. What in the world were you thinking? And David says, I don't know, man. I was pretty desperate. I, I figured, you know, maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, so I went there. So Samuel says to him, are you kidding? These are Philistines, David. Not a smart thing to do. And David says, I know, but I thought, you know, maybe I wasn't thinking straight. Maybe they wouldn't recognize me. Samuel looks at him and says, David, do you know what town you went to? David says, yeah, I went to Gath. Samuel says, you, you know the, the big resident who used to live there? You know the one before you cut his head off? You didn't think they'd recognize you? And by the way, is it true you were carrying Goliath's sword, dragging that into town? Yeah, yeah, it is. Just, I'm, I messed up, man. I, don't, I wasn't sure what was going on. 
Samuel says to him, so how did you get out of it? And he says, I pretended to be insane. Samuel says, pretended? (laughs) And it was upon this occasion that Samuel wrote the psalm, dumb ways to die. (laughs) So many dumb ways to die. It's like, oh man, let's just, let's not do this again, okay? That's because he is not omniscient. He doesn't make the wisest decisions. In fact, point number two, David, along with the other characters in the story, often gets it wrong. He says in chapter 27, one of these days, I'm gonna be swept away by the hand of Saul. No, no, you're not. I know that's what you think, but that's not true. Jonathan gets it wrong. Jonathan says this. Uh, He says, don't be afraid. In chapter 23, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Oh man, what a sweet sentiment. But no, Jonathan, that's not right. You're not gonna be alive. You're gonna die on Mount Gilboa. You won't be around at all. And then his nephew Abishai correctly says, today God has delivered the enemy into your hands. But then he foolishly concludes, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the sword, of the spear. David is not self-sufficient. He often requires rescue by others, as we have already said, Abigail and Jonathan and Ahimelech and Abishai and Gad and others. I know that we love our heroes and we really want to believe that he has extraordinary skills. Even his culture was quick to lionize him, you know, the number one hit song, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. The Israelites loved it. Saul hated it. The Philistines feared it. But this narrative, this story, all these stories together tell us it ain't true. It's not true at all. Not not unless Goliath counts for 19,900. It's not true. You say, but it's in the Bible. Isn't it true? No. God didn't say it. It's what the people said. It's just social media is all it was. And so people exaggerating claims until everybody else believed it. But the good news is that David does not believe it. He knew it was a myth. Point number four, he's not portrayed as some standalone fictional character with superhuman gifts. Psalm 151, he wrote, I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Hercules and his gifts. Can you finish it? And clearly I don't see myself upon that list. So you've heard of Psalm 151 before. Okay, he didn't really write that, but the sentiment is identical. David does not buy into the myth that he has superhuman powers. In fact, the truth of it is he is imperfect, he is weak, he is vulnerable, he is dependent. And honestly, yeah, you're gonna hate me for this one, he really wasn't even that good with a slingshot. It wasn't. I mean, read the story. There's not a shred of evidence that he had great skill. The only thing that he had was that God was with him. What David understands is that he is human and his only superpower is that God is with him. Second, David is not just a man, but he is a man after God's own heart. This is the central teaching of all 11 chapters and it's most clearly seen here in chapters 24 to 26 in his repeated refusal to harm Saul. Now, the story goes something like this, right? That David has been anointed king, we all know that. 
David is hunting him like a dog to make sure that doesn't happen. But the easiest way out for David would have simply have been to have killed Saul, become king, and then he would have been relieved of all the pressure. But he doesn't do that, and, and that's exactly what happens here in these three stories that are sort of like a sandwich because in 24 and in 26, he does not take Saul's life. In 25, the whole principle is stated. So let me just show these to you quickly. Let's start with chapter 24. This is the one that we all know where David is hiding in the cave Saul comes in and his buddies say this to him. I'm in chapter 24 here. David's men said to him, this is the day about which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand and you can do to him whatever seems appropriate to you. So go ahead and do it. Now in their minds, when they say do whatever's appropriate to you, they're saying kill him right now. Do whatever's appropriate to you. There's, there's being kind about it. Say do whatever, whatever you think is right. So David got up and quietly cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And all the guys in the back say, no, cut out his heart, don't cut off his robe. And David has to restrain them from going after Saul. And David is standing alone here saying, no, I'm not gonna do that. He is the Lord's anointed, right? Then in chapter 25, we have a very, seems like a very different story, but it is so critical. This is where a man, Nabal, a fool, insults David so badly, right? that David is on his way to kill him. And instead, Abigail shows up and she says to him, sir, let the guilt lay on me, don't do this. And so the way the language goes is this. Abigail comes to him very wisely and says, now my Lord, surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, it is the Lord who's kept you from shedding blood and taking matters into your own hands. You catch that? God has kept you from shedding blood and taking matters into your own hands. And then she says it again a couple of paragraphs later. Your conscience will not be overwhelmed with guilt for having poured out innocent blood and for having taken matters into your own hands. There it is twice. And then the author has David repeat it a third time. And David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Praise be your good judgment may you yourself be rewarded for having prevented me from shedding blood and taking matters into my own hands. Now, I don't think that David was having second thoughts, but just in case he was, just in case he was, this reinforces the next story, which is my favorite here in chapter 26. In chapter 26, Saul's camp is very close to David. He has 3,000 soldiers with him, imagine, the, the amount of people in this auditorium now, and, and Saul is sleeping in the middle of them. David gets the bright idea and he says, hey, who wants to go with me to meet Saul? It's like, is that a joke, right? Who in the world, who wants to go? But Abishai, his nephew, wants to go. So David and Abishai approached the army at night and found Saul lying asleep in the entrenchment, that is in the circle here, uh, uh, surrounded by all the soldiers, um, Saul lying asleep in the entrenchment and Abner and the army were lying all around him. So Abishai says to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me drive the spear right through him into the ground. You see what's going on here? 
Abishai was there before where he said, where all the guys said to David, do everything is right. And uh, Abishai says he didn't do what was right. So I'm not gonna give him the option anymore. I'm just gonna make it real easy. Say, David, here's that spear. You know that one that he used to chuck at you all the time? <laughs> here it is. I've got it. And he's right here. And all I have to do, just, just say the word, man, and your troubles will be over and you can be king. Just say the word and I will do it. And uh, you won't even have to do it twice. It's that easy. Okay, okay, can I do it, boss? And David says, you were right when you said that God had delivered him into our hands, but not so that I could kill him, so that I could not kill him. Abishai says, what? God says, David says, yes, he is the Lord's anointed. God may take him or he may die of old age, but far be it from me, God is in charge. He knows what's right. And I will not take the kingship that way. And why is this? Well, here's, here's the part I wanna show you most importantly, because this is, this, I'm gonna show you God's purposes in this. Because this is where God's purposes come out and they're almost comical and profound. They're comical because they've had this big conversation, Abishai and David. David's going on, I'm not gonna take him. And uh, you wonder after a while, wait a minute, how loud can this conversation be? How long can it go? before everybody else wakes up. And in fact, you notice there's a certain amount of desperation. Uh, May the Lord prevent me from extending my hand. Uh, So then he says, now take the spear by Saul's head and the jug of water and let's get out of here. Exclamation point. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got out of there. Well, I think so. They're right in the middle of the camp. No one saw them or was aware of their presence or woke up. All of them were asleep for the Lord had caused a deep sleep to fall on them. Now, wait a minute, why, why does God do that? Is it because God wants to protect Saul? Well, yeah, but that's just a small part. Saul would protect David? He could have just not let David come in here and that would have protected him. But God says, no, this has to happen. Exactly the way it is. All that dialogue has to happen right here. Abishai has to make it really easy for him and David has to refuse it. And the only way to make that happen is if I put everybody to sleep because I want everyone to see this. What does God want everyone to see? What God wants everyone to see is what it looks to see a man after God's own heart. That's exactly what David here is here. This is the point. This is what it means for a human to be in a right relationship with God's heart. You don't reach out and take what seems good to you You let God decide what is good and you wait for him to provide it. God wants us to see that. You don't reach out and take what is good, what seems good to you. You let God do what is good and wait for him to provide it. This is the error of Adam and Eve where they saw and took the fruit. This is our error every day. But it was not Jesus' error What God had done back here with David was divinely manufacture the scene by keeping everyone asleep so it could play out. In another divinely manufactured scene, there was another anointed yet not seated king of Israel who was driven into the wilderness by the spirit so that there can be an enemy in the third temptation in the gospel of Matthew who looked at him and said, you know what, if you just bow down, you can have the kingdom. 
And instead of Abishai, it is the tempter himself who says the same thing. Abishai said, just, just let me stab him one time, it'll be over and you won't have to die and you can be king. A thousand years later, the enemy comes and says to the son of God, if you just, I'll make it easy. You don't even have to bow down twice, just bow down once and you can be king and you won't have to die. And Jesus says, no, I will not take what God has promised for me ahead of time. I will do it his way. I'll go through the suffering of the cross and then in his good time, I will become the king of Israel. You see the absolute comparison here between the two? I mean, nowhere in scripture is anybody put in a situation where they perfectly mimic, they perfectly show us the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Father. This is why David is a man after God's own heart. So how do we become men and women after God's own heart? How do we prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare when powerful temptation comes? Before Eve ever reached for the fruit, she had already decided in her heart that she was autonomous from God. She was independent. She already decided God wasn't in control anymore. She was in charge. And she took the fruit. But David, David did not feel that way. David knew it was the Lord's anointed, that God was in charge, that he'd set the rules and he wasn't gonna do it. Jesus himself knew that the Father was in charge and would not take matters into his own hands, but let God provide it. So you might be thinking, I need to read my Bible more and pray more. It's probably always a good idea. But if you wanna become a man or a woman after God's own heart, I would suggest we go deeper and ask yourself these three diagnostic questions. Number one, who is in charge of the universe? I'm not asking for the answer you would give on a test. I'm asking you to look at your life, look at your behavior, your thoughts, your actions, and how you behave, and based upon that, who is it that you think is in charge of the universe? Are you careful about God's laws? Are you following his laws or are you making up your own? And if you are, I would encourage you to repent and say, no, God, I'm not in charge. You are in charge of everything. It's not me. And if you can answer that question, then number two, does he know what is good and what I really need? Of course he knows what is good. He knows the number of hairs in your head. He has far more intimate knowledge about you than you do, and he knows exactly what you need. And then number three, will I trust him to provide that? Who's in charge? Is he good? And can I trust him? If you can answer those three questions, yes, then you can say no to any temptation that comes along. And you have to ask yourself those three questions every day. You know why? Because our hearts have a default setting that we're in charge. And every night when you go to sleep, that switch gets flipped back, you're in charge. And every morning you gotta say, no, no, God is in charge today. The reason I say that is because we've taken a look at 11 chapters right here. But in simply 11 chapters from now, in 2 Samuel 11, David's gonna forget those lessons that he exemplified so perfectly here. And there's gonna be another beautiful woman and a husband in between. It's not gonna be Abigail, it's gonna be Bathsheba, it's not gonna be Nabal, it's going to be Uriah. 
and David is gonna take matters into his own hands. In fact, the writer is, of Samuel is not kind to David. It just lays it all out right there. He frames David's sin in 2 Samuel 11 in the very same words as Eve in Genesis 3. He saw and took. And imagine how the words of 1 Samuel 25, Abigail's speech, hit differently after 2 Samuel 11. Your conscience will be overwhelmed with guilt for having poured out innocent blood and for having taken matters into your own hands. Both of those design patterns of Genesis 3 and 1 Samuel 25 nailed David to the wall in a way Saul's spear never could have. Becoming a man or a woman after God's own heart is our goal. But it's not like a trophy that once you get it, you can just keep it and it lasts forever. Becoming a man or woman after God's own heart is a daily pursuit flipping that switch to who's in charge of the universe every day. Let's pray. Father, it is almost hard to imagine what would happen if you had 3,000 people who were people after your own heart. Lord, it's it's almost a mind-boggling thought, and yet, Lord, it is so outrageous, it's exactly what I pray for. I pray that we would become men and women after your heart, that know that you are good, that know that you're in charge, that know that your rules are best and and happily leave our success in your hands. God, I pray that we would become a culture that promoted what is most important to your heart, that we become people after your heart. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.